Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished moderator for today, Michael Pappas, the Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Michael Pappas, Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council, which is a cooperation circle of United Religions Initiative. And I'll be your moderator for today's program, Envisioning Peace, the United Religions Initiative. And before I introduce our distinguished panel, you know, Bishop Swing, they say that confession is good for the soul. Not here. Not Not here. (laughs) Well, watching this uh, and knowing uh, this wonderful panel, I'm reminded of uh, something Rita Semmel has said. The best thing about our work is we get to meet the most wonderful people. Mm. And I've had the privilege of working with each of our panelists and have been looking forward to this uh, engaging opportunity. URI, the United Religions Initiative, is the world's largest grassroots interfaith peace-building organization working in 108 countries. URI is a global network of more than 1,000 grassroots groups that are called cooperation circles, whose purpose is to promote enduring daily interfaith cooperation, to end religiously motivated violence, and to create cultures of peace justice, and healing for the earth and all living beings. Today, we're going to explore the work of this remarkable global network whose global office is based in San Francisco, in the Presidio. We are joined by URI's founder and president, the Right Reverend William Swing, URI founding chair, Rita Semmel, and URI's executive director, Victor Kazanjian. Uh, when I found out that we were going to be watching this wonderful video, uh, I thought to pose the first question to Victor, uh, just to follow up on this video. And I just am hoping, Victor, recently you or I did gather grassroots peace builders and global policymakers at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Why was this event so significant and at this moment in history? Thank you, Michael. At this time in history when it seems as though so many of the bonds of society, of human relationship, are becoming frayed, and all too often that fraying is happening as people are encouraged to uh, become separated from each other along identity lines. In June at Stanford University, the people of the world, grassroots peace builders who are part of URI, the United Religions Initiative, and also partners from the United Nations and from international organizations came together to discuss how we can build deeply rooted connections with one another across lines of difference among people of different beliefs who fundamentally identify with a deep common connection and that that can be applied to some of the crucial humanitarian 
crises in the world. So as URI is a humanitarian organization that works with people of all beliefs, religious, spiritual, indigenous, and people who identify as humanist and atheist and agnostic, all coming together to build peace from the local level, the grassroots. This was a remarkable moment of bringing together policy builders and peacemakers that we might chart a different course than we see happening around us all too often today. Thank you. Bill and Rita, it's, you use the word movement, and it, it's said that movements start at the grassroots. You two have been part of URI for quite a long time, <laughs> from we, the very beginning. We were in our teens. <laughs> <laughs> You might want to say a little bit about that, but can you also share with us why you believe the work of URI is so important in our world today? Well, I've lived longer than anybody in this room, I venture to say. And uh, I look around and I, I see the chaos that is everywhere. And more than ever, I believe that people have to come together. If our leaders won't do it, we have to do it. And as a matter of fact, if we do it, it's more important than if our leaders do it. And I was fortunate enough uh, to be present when Reverend Dr. Bishop, my friend... <laughs> Keep going. I like you. <laughs> more honored. Don't call him late for dinner. <laughs> Bill Swing got the call at the 50th anniversary of the United Nations to have a, a service which would bring together all the nations of the world and all the religions of the world to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the UN. And that was the beginning of it. We met how many times? A, a million. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a fabulous, fabulous program at Grace Cathedral in which we had 26 or 27 different religions participate. And as we stood on the steps of Grace Cathedral when it was over, we looked at each other and we said, we can't stop now. We can't let this moment go by. We have to do something. And that was the modest beginning of what turned out to be United Religions. Mm. Yeah, and I said, um, I'll get some people and we'll meet in my living room on Monday morning. This, and uh, about six people ended up in my living room on Monday morning. And four of them went and dropped off really quickly. <laughs> so, so Rita and I had an idea of changing the world. <laughs> uh, That's known as chutzpah. <laughs> so if there is such a thing as the United Nations, couldn't there be something called the United Religions, figuring there'll never be peace among nations mm. without peace among religions. And there'll never be peace among religions until somebody creates a level playing field where everybody can meet. Mm-hmm. So I went around the world and talked to the religious leaders, the Pope and the Dalai Lama and Mother Teresa and everybody and everybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. And I asked him one question, which was, um, could you deputize somebody from your tradition to meet with deputies from other traditions and get all the religions of the world in one place and uh, pursue peace among religions? Because that would change world history. And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so, so that collapsed. Uh, that I remember you coming back, and we met, and you saying, telling us this story, and we decided, all of us together, 
led by you and your wonderful wife, Mary, that if the leaders wouldn't do it, the people would do it. And the leaders told you that they would take credit for it, but you had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Words to that effect. (laughs) And what happened was um, we had 56 people who met at the Fairmont Hotel, and we said, let's go for it. Uh, It'll be grassroots. It'll be women and men. uh, And it'll not just be religions, but it'll be indigenous traditions. Mm -hmm. And it'll be humanists or... People who say, I'm spiritual but not religious. If you're going to open the door, open it all the way. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, let's go for it. And um, I went to a bank and got a million-dollar line of credit. If you ever wonder why banks get in trouble, <laughs> <laughs> I hired four people, and we started having inter- interfaith events around the world, and we had this great... Um, outpouring of humanity, quality people. And so we brought them all to Stanford University to write a charter. And they were terrible at writing a charter. Couldn't do it. But they were great at becoming a community. Mm. So the first thing that we had was a global community. Mm. And then we got the words right. But to get the words right, I had to go out and hire somebody who invented the visa card, uh, D. Hawk. And I said, D, what you did with banking, could I do with religion? And he said, it can be done, but you're going to have to sit in a room with me for three years. And I said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm a working man. I, <laughs> I got churches and priests and schools and homeless and hospitals. Blah, blah. So it's the only way it's going to be done. So we sat in a room for three years writing a charter, and we got it right. Can you imagine writing one sentence that every religion in the world would agree on? (laughs) I mean, you could write a charter in a weekend. You could just say love and tolerance and peace and joy. But boy, when you get down to the the nubbin of what are you really talking about? Took a long, took three years Mm -hmm. to write the charter. We signed it in the year two thousand. How how are the how is the charter expressed in the movement? I think that that's, I mean, a charter is a piece of paper. I'll just throw this out to all of you. How is it expressed in the movement? I don't know what you mean by express, but I, let me say that if I'm, I'm in Imphal, India, um, the state of Imphal, in, um, I, I, go, I, I go down the street, and there'll, there'll be banners across the street advertising URI, and when we get to the big auditorium, there the the leaders of URI will stand up on the stage and recite the twenty one principles and the purpose by heart. Well, I can't do that. That's right. <laughs> I'm the founder and president. I can't remember all that. Yeah. But if you're living in a place where a gun's at your head because of what you believe, and you could get mm-hmm. killed because of what you think about God, finding some words. That are that collect everybody, and has some forgiveness and mercy in them, and has some expectations of grace in them. Uh, people flock to that. It's and, it's water in a desert for a lot of people. You know, Bill, I, I have that same experience as I go around the world, and I, I I wish I could take each of you with me because seeing and being with these circles of people sitting together, 
many cases, groups that have been at war with each other or are currently at war with each other or are in desperate poverty or are, are whose wells are drying up and there's no water in their community. And yet what binds them together are the values and ethics that were expressed mm-hmm. in this charter. And it's not a religious document. One of the first, the first principle is that URI is a bridge-building organization, not a religion. And so URI exists to make those pathways in which people can connect to each other heart-to-heart, head-to-head, and then act, move into action. It's just not about conversation. It's about how do we address these deep challenges in the world. That, I think that's one of the keys. Each cooperation circle decides on what they want to do, what their community needs, what they, need, what they have to do to make the community better. And you need three people, you need three different religions and a minimum of seven people, and you can start a cooperation circle. And we've got cooperation circles that do everything from clearing the water in in a stream next to a school to cleaning up the streets to doing what the Interfaith Council does in San Francisco, bringing people together. You name it, we've got a cooperation circle that does it. And that, to me, is the most important part about it because it gives people their own opportunity to be who they are and do what they feel is needed. Rita, I'm going to ask you this next question because the one thing I marvel about well, thanks to modern technology, people from around the world can be uh, speaking to each other, and, and URI utilizes modern technology to the fullest. But way back in the beginning, when you were the uh, first chair of the Global Council, can you tell us the story just on the importance of language, things that maybe we take for granted? It's one of my favorite stories. I called the meeting to order... And one delegate from Mexico raised his hand and said, Modern Chair, Madam Chair. And there was a a woman from, an indigenous woman from South America who was there with with the translator. And she was speaking very quickly to to the translator. And the translator said, May I speak, please? And I said, Yes. And she said, Rosalita wants to know what is a chair. That's right. And, and, and I realized what, what kind of difficulties we had to overcome just in understanding a simple concept of a chair of a committee. Yes. What is a chair? We think of a chair. This is a chair. <laughs> what is a chair? Well, I think you're a sofa. <laughs> so bigger, big, bigger than a sofa. Bigger than, bigger than a chair. Victor, as the executive director of URI, you have the opportunity to see work on the ground all over the world. Uh, can you share with us a couple of examples of what URI looks like outside of San Francisco? Yes. Thank you, Mike. Glenna. And URI being a grassroots organization where the cooperation circles um, are independent and self-organizing and determined for themselves what their communities need is so important because so many organizations are top-down or from an office in New York or San Francisco or D.C. dictate what they think communities need. And that's the opposite of what URI is, the, the vision that Bill and Rita and others had of really creating a grassroots organization that honored the wisdom of the community. That's what it's about. A month ago, I was in the north of Uganda, 
um, a, a community, an area that has survived uh, terrible wars over the last 25 years and um, was with one of the original URI cooperation circles, the early cooperation circles, which was a group of local leaders from different religious communities who came together in the midst of horrific violence, who slept in the streets with the children who were coming in from their villages in fear of being kidnapped and forced into becoming child soldiers. And they slept in the streets with these children until the UN took notice and helped to kind of intervene. Here's these, these religious local leaders who are now pretty, pretty old in there. They are senior. They are, their wisdom is strong and they are elders in their community. 20 years before, some of those children, some of those girls were kidnapped and forced into sex slavery and taken across the border. Fast forward 20 years, and when I was there last month, those women, those young women, have now come back from their captivity to reintegrate into their community, into their villages, many with children from, from that experience, from the rape and the horror that they experienced. They have formed a cooperation circle of women who, of different traditions who support each other in social, emotional healing and who've developed economic development with each other that we help to support so that they can create a life together. But their communities are rejecting them. So here come the old religious leaders standing up for this, these young women and saying, these are our daughters, these are our sisters, this is our family, we will accept them back. We will uh, welcome them back into their community. And that's what URI looks like on the ground. It looks like people coming together across lines of difference to address the key issues in their communities, helping each other, connecting to resources that allow funds and other support to come in, but determining what they need, and in this case, saving and supporting and transforming the lives of their communities as well. So that's one example. (laughs) And there are over a thousand of these groups all over the world. As Michael said, 108 countries who are working together, um, proving, I often say I have the, the best job in the world because all day long, while the the media spews stories of people hating each other, I hear stories of people working together, people who of all religions, of all beliefs, of all cultures, committed to each other in deep relationship working for change. And it is extraordinary. And it's very hard to get publicity for that. Mm-hmm. Bad news makes the front page. Yep. Good news these are the back page, if at all. Yeah. These are very fragile times. And, Bill, I know you wear lots of hats. Mm. I know you're a president mm. of this organization. Mm. Uh, but one of the things that's really inspired me is your work with nuclear weapons mm. and the cooperation circle uh, that you lead. If you could tell us about that work. Um, sure. It was alluded to on the screen here, but maybe you can just flesh right. it out. Um, for many, many years, decades, I've worked on nuclear disarmament and feeling like I hadn't done enough. And so I, 
I called up some of my friends, and I have very important friends. I'm a name dropper. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you a side story. <laughs> a friend of mine who is, uh, uh, was a chaplain to the royal family in England, he said, uh, the queen mother and I hate name droppers. <laughs> <laughs> You have to have a response. <laughs> so there I am with my friends. There's uh, George Schultz, uh, Secretary of State, formerly Bill Perry, Secretary of Defense, Sidney Drell, a great physicist, no longer with us, Ambassador Thomas Graham and a few others. And I thought, okay, why don't we get together on the phone once a month for an hour and see if we could, um, what we could do, be opportunistic. We always started the meeting with a prayer which I wrote, a little called The Nuclear Prayer. And somebody said, well, why don't we have a YouTube of the eight of us saying the prayer together? That's an odd crowd to see praying on YouTube. <laughs> but we did it. And uh, it's and it, it was a chance for them not only to say the prayer, but also to give a testimonial about what it is inside them that's responding to what's out the threat that's out there. It's very moving. And uh, so we showed that uh, video in Toronto, and a lot of people said, we'd like to join you. And we showed it at Stanford, and a whole lot more people said, we'd like to join you. So now we've got to think in terms of, well, it's not eight of us or 20 of us. Now it's hundreds of us. And other interfaith groups said, well, we'd like to work with you too. So now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Um, uh, the problem in the world, <laughs> a problem in the world mm. with nuclear weapons is that uh, at a time where uh, Russia and America and China are walking away from treaties that bind us together to keep the world safe, while they're walking away, we're going to be spending a trillion dollars modernizing the weapons. Uh, so... The safeguards are leaving, and the weapons are, are proliferating. At the same time, uh, Turkey wants a weapon. We're moving some information over to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, so pro proliferation, proliferation, and it's all based on a myth. Uh, the myth is the perfectibility of human beings, that there will ne we're so perfect that there will never be an accident. There will never be a president that pushes the button. Uh, there will never be uh, an accident uh, in r r transport. There will never be a problem with storage of nuclear uh, materials. They'll never. It, it's we we we've had 74 years where we've been working on deterrence as our main um, our main approach, and that's based on. Human beings are perfect, and we will always get it right and never get it wrong. If we get it wrong once and fire, and somebody fires back, uh, just forget the northern hemisphere, because that's where the bombs are. Whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. If you got the weapons, you'll die by the weapons someday. Uh, we had the, the earth is 14 billion years old. We've had 74 years where we haven't dropped a bomb. Uh, we think uh, our present attitude is we're perfect and we'll never do it. 
and let's get them, let, and therefore, let's get bigger bombs and have more countries with bombs uh, because it's all going to work out fine. We're perfect. And that is crazy. goes back to the first chapter of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. It said you got a whole, you've got paradise here. Uh, only one thing. Don't do that one thing and life will be great. You do that one thing and it's all over. You're out of here. Well, that's that's the story of the of the bomb and us as a people. So we work on it uh, uh, all the time. Mm. Just a follow up to that, because I know that relationships and storytelling are the hallmarks of interfaith work. Um, Bill and Rita, would the two of you t- together tell the story of how you leveraged relationships that led to a historic planting in Golden Gate Park's Japanese tea garden of saplings that survived the atomic bombs at Hiroshima. Well, a couple of years ago, we had a a big uh, evening uh, devoted to environment, and we invited URI environmentalists all from around the world. And one of the ladies was uh, Tomoko Watanabe from uh, Hiroshima. And she came over in her beautiful kimono, and she had uh, five saplings, when the bomb hit Hiroshima, right at the center, it was a thousand, it was a million degrees. It wasn't a thousand degrees or 10,000 or a hundred thousand or 50,000. It was a million degrees and everything vaporized. But what didn't vaporize was a couple of trees. They made it through everything. So, Tomoko is from Hiroshima, and she got some of those trees and got the saplings and brought them to San Francisco and gave them to us. They were so little we couldn't plant them, so we waited uh, four years, and they finally got big enough. So we went over to Golden Gate Park about a month ago and uh, honored George and Charlotte Schultz and uh, planted planted them as uh, to say that the relationship between Japan and America is no longer at war, we're at peace. And to say, um, instead of burning everything up at a million degrees, let's plant trees and uh, uh, share the trees together. Mm. So that's, that's what Rita? No, uh, it, was, it was a very moving thing to go into to Golden Gate Park and to present them. And they were moved. The people at Golden Gate Park were moved Mm -hmm. that they were going to be the recipient of this dreadful thing and have this small example of encouragement and hope. I just want to say that I think you're being a little modest here. Rita is referred to as the matriarch of interfaith in the 7 by 7 here in San Francisco, (laughs) if you want to get something done. Um, So Rita has a good relationship with the Park and Rec's department. And so uh, she pulled every string (laughs) she had to make sure that the Japanese tea garden would be receptive. Thank you. And if we have people coming from overseas and they can't get a visa? Just we go to... She's the Statue of Liberty. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Victor, um, we had coffee the other day, and I just, I'm going to pose this question to you. Mm. You're, you're at the helm now 
of an inst- of an organization that's 20 years old. Is the United Religion still an initiative? Hmm. I mean, I, I get no, invited onto task forces, and, and if I go on to it, I know that they sunset. Yeah. But um, is the United Religion still an initiative? Yes. So I think of, of um, URI as an initiative the same way I think of life on this planet as an initiative. It is an organic, growing, rooted, transforming community. It's not an organization, as Bill and Rita would, uh, the language they used at the beginning, it's an organism. Mm -hmm. It's more of an organism than an organization. It's not trying to build something that is, seems permanent, but, you know, disintegrates over time. It's investing in people and in the planet and in the ways in which people pass that on, that sense of connection across lines of religious hatred transformed into love, pass that on generationally, becomes part of the the DNA. Our love for the earth as we are taught by our indigenous sisters and brothers, this mother earth, um, which is not sick, right? As the Dalai Lama said, said recently, it's not the earth that's sick. It's humanity that's sick. The earth is uh, this mother being that is giving us life and we are struggling. So I think of URI not as an organ- organization that has this kind of structure that we need to, but it's an organism. It's a living being. Therefore, I think of my role and our role who work for URI as more like peace building midwives. We are called in for a time into a creative moment, into a moment of birthing, when something, when a community wants to birth something new, their own creative project, their own creative energy. And we come in with a set of tools and skills that we have to offer, and we offer those skills humbly, and but in service to that community, for it's the cooperation circle, it's the community that is URI. When I go down to um, South America, to the indigenous communities there who are so often treated as objects, even of well-meaning NGOs and organizations, those indigenous communities don't say, URI is coming to visit us. They say to me, we are URI and you work for us. And that's the difference. Here's indigenous communities or communities of interfaith people around the world who are URI, they are URI. And we who have the pleasure for a time of being in service to that global initiative mm-hmm. um, do our best to be midwives to that process, that, that, that life might grow and flourish um, and that we might have some small role in that. I think someday it would be wonderful to find out, well, maybe you've already done it and I don't know it, exactly what each URI cooperation circle does and sort of tabulate who does what. Yeah. I mean, I know of, I know of some who work with the schools or work with the land or work with the rivers or work with whatever, but it would be wonderful to find out exactly what all of them do. Have. I, that's yeah. an enormous all, job, Victor. You know, Rita, the, um, we have in our room with us our wonderful director of communications, Isabel Ortega, who has just transformed our entire website so that anyone can go in and search 
and find out what cooperation circles do and how many are working on oh, the environment great. or women's empowerment or nuclear weapons. I think that's, that's great, great because that's an untold story and one that needs to be told. Yeah. You, um, you can shamelessly say what the website is if you like. <laughs> URI.org. <laughs> URI.org. Fair enough. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Rita, you've been a midwife. You've birthed a few cooperation circles in your time. Um, can you bring us back to San Francisco? I know of at least two that you've birthed, one that I happen to be the director of now. But can you talk about why the relationship with, say, the San Francisco Interfaith Council or the Interfaith Center at the Presidio is so important? Well, because it, both of them are, are symbolize the, the basis for which URI circles exist. In other words, find a need and do something about it. And 30 years ago, this is a story I've told so often, maybe some of you have heard it, if so, forgive me. But 30 years ago, the mayor of San Francisco called the religious community into his office and said, we don't have enough shelters for the homeless. It was, it was December, it was cold, and it was rainy. On a day like today, it's hard to imagine what it was. And he said, you've got to open your doors and help. I wasn't there because I'm not a clergy. But the president of the Board of Rabbis came into my office. I was the director of the Jewish Community Relations Council at the time. And he said, we've got to do this. And we got four congregations, Grace Cathedral being one, uh, Calvary Presbyterian Church, St. Boniface, I forget the fourth one, Old St. Mary's, Mm -hmm. and we opened the doors, we provided the meals, and we fed the homeless. And came February in the end of the rainy season, we thought we were done. (laughs) And then the following September came Loma Prieta earthquake, Mm -hmm. and people in San Francisco suffered, and Church World Service went to the then pastor of Calvary Presbyterian Church and said, we're going to give you money to help people in San Francisco, but... You just can't give it to Protestants. You've got to give it to everybody. So he said, well, I better form a committee. So we formed a committee, and to nobody's surprise, it was the same ones who worked on the shelter. And we distributed the money and helped as many people as we could. And when we had the debrief meeting, we said, every time something happens, we can't just have another committee. We've got to have an organization. And that was the beginning of the San Francisco Interfaith Council which was the perfect kind of organization to become a a cooperation circle because I think, said she immodestly, I think the San Francisco Interfaith Council embodies all of the virtues that make a cooperation circle. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Let me ask a question here. You're asking questions? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) To the audience. Uh, San Francisco, very secular, not a very particular religious uh, community in uh, the public eye. How many religious congregations do you think exist in San Francisco? 
You don't. Want me, you don't want me to answer. <laughs> <laughs> you looked in the back of the book. How many would you guess? Three hundred and fifty. Three fifty. Good point. Another one. How many? Two hundred and thirty. Okay. Thank you. There are eight hundred. There are eight hundred religious congregations in San Francisco, and they all are underneath the San Francisco Interfaith Council, and that's a cooperation circle of URI. And if you want to get something done in San Francisco, this is a place you go. But if you would ask anybody in San Francisco how this community works, they would never, you'd never think of the religious community. But it's a... Uh, but here we are. <laughs> and we're not going anywhere. That's right. I, you know, and the San Francisco Interfaith Council works in conjunction with our counterparts in the other counties. That's right. right. This was a lesson we learned during the North Bay fires, how interrelated we really were. And I just want to acknowledge the presence of Will McGarvey, my counterpart in Contra Costa County, which is also a cooperation circle of URI. I'm just wondering to the panel, but especially, you know, Victor and Bill, would you tell us a little bit about the exciting team building that you're doing, the URI is engaged in, with its sister movements in the Parliament for the World's Religions and the Charter for Compassion and Religions for Peace. Sure. So after the first 20 years of URI's life, we celebrate our 20th anniversary this June. Um, a lot of that time, as you can imagine, was spent internally focused, helping to nurture these cooperation circles in all parts of the world, helping to create a, a strong community that could um, face down the kind of violence and injustices that we see in, in the world. And yet the charter of URI that Bill talked about earlier calls for peace, justice, and healing for the earth and all living beings. This is not a job just for URI, obviously. So what has happened is the strength and the breadth of URI has now given us the ability to open more towards global partners, local partners, in the spirit of what something like the San Francisco or Contra Costa Interfaith Councils do in working with governments and working with other agencies, that we too are now really working through partnerships, forging partnerships with um, institutions at the United Nations, with intergovernmental organizations, transnational organizations, and in particular, the other interfaith organizations, including Religions for Peace, Charter for Compassion, the Parliament of the World's Religions, who have lived in sort of at best siloed spaces, kind of disconnected from each other, and at worst in competitive spaces, which is the kind of underside of the peace movement or the interfaith movement where organizations are co trying to compete with each other. Um, the leaders in, of those, all those organizations have come together. We're all friends. We now are, are people who, who care about each other deeply, who respect each other, who, who want to support each other. And the global interfaith organizations are now forming a global pact of kind of oneness, that we will look at how to complement each other. How do we work together in certain areas? What are the unique abilities that each each of these groups have that can work together. And it's changing the landscape of the way interfaith interacts with the other great issues or organizations or development projects or peace-building initiatives. And I think it brings the interfaith world into a very strong place of partnership with um, the rest of the world, which is very exciting. May I add something? 
Absolutely. I had a conversation recently with uh, Bishop Mark Andrus, who succeeded Bishop Swing as the Episcopal Bishop of this diocese. And he said something to me which has stuck with my mind, which I'd like to share with you. He said, you know, when you pare it down, at the basis of every religion, there is one guiding principle, and that's the object of each religion is to repair the world. Mm. And if you think about it, and I have thought about it, and being Jewish, tikkun olam, Mm. repair the world, has been a principle in my life. It is the guiding principle of every religion. Mm-hmm. And, when, and that's what you or I does mm-hmm. to repair the world. God gave us a broken world and said, it's up to you to fix it. <laughs> Bill, do you want to ask anything? No, I, okay. think, I think they're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask one last question, and then we, we've got about 15 minutes for the, uh, for the audience questions, which are very, very intriguing, and we will try to get to all of them. Um, at a time when the mission of the United Nations couldn't be more important, uh, I was wondering if you might share with us some of the new and exciting developments vis-a-vis URI's relationship with that international body. I know for some time you've had a mission there, Mm. But are there some things that are happening now uh, that are bolstering the position of URI at the United Nations? Sure. Thank you, Michael. We've had uh, an office and work at the URI at the UN for quite some time. But we have now formal uh, memorandums of agreement and working partnerships with a number of UN agencies. The first was the Office of Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect, because it is the breaking down of relationships. It's the stereotyping that, that turns into the kind of alienation that can be used of one towards another, quite frankly, that we're seeing in the world and in this country right now, that is the precursor to genocide. We know this. We know what the signs are that lead to horrific human atrocity. And we've worked with the Office of Genocide Prevention for a number of years around local educational efforts to dispel stereotype, to bring people into relationship with each other so that as those identity pieces are used by despotic leaders to try to divide and and uh, turn one against the other, that we're able to partner with them to uh, keep that from happening and to transform those those communities. Second big uh, partnership for us was with UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund, because issues affecting women at this moment in time of everything from violence to health to empowerment to leadership in communities are, we believe, crucial, and gender equity has been a principle of URI since the very beginning. So our partnership with UNFPA and the Population Fund and the importance of women and women's health and women's lives is a major piece of our work. We also work with the um, with UNESCO, and we work with the Alliance of Civilizations, and we have all these really powerful partnerships that are emerging. And URI's role is largely to create space where the voices of ordinary people from communities can speak into those places where policy is made. That's one of our big roles. So we sit at those meetings so that we can create space so that people whose voices are often not heard get to be heard in those spaces. And conversely, the UN, which has issues in trying to bring the, um, 
trying to bring that their programs down into communities. We are able to help them to bring that down into their communities, and so to get traction locally. And that's so important because these great projects that people work on in the halls of the United Nations often get stuck and don't reach down into communities. And that's where URI comes in: is that we can be that bridge. So those are part of our. Could you could you say a word about our status? Oh, we are. Uh, we have been so for many years uh, 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 an official uh, member of ECOSOC, which is the um, Committee on Eco- Economics and Social at the U- UN, and we're an ECOSOC UN organization. That's an important piece for us, so that we have a seat and a, a voice among the NGOs at the UN. So, I'm, uh, there were two questions from the audience, um, and both of them have to do with young people. Mm. And one has to do with inspiring young people. How does URI inspire young people, often associating with many religions and and the divisiveness that's out there among religions and, and intolerance? The other, does URI have programs that include children so that its principles are learned by people early on? I'll take a shot at just beginning that. Um, One of the unique things about URI is because although there are formal religious leaders, clergy and others, who are members of URI, they don't hold any any special standing. They're just members of the group. So that the majority of URI cooperation circles are made up of ordinary folk from communities who are doing the work. That means, uncharacteristically of many interfaith groups, that the majority of our members are women and young young people, which is sort of unheard of in the, in the interfaith world. Young people have been part of the beginning of URI. They were honored as full members of URI. There, there are youth projects that have been going on and training that's been going on throughout the history of URI. And we now have six young, young people who have been elected onto our board, our global board. Um, So not as youth representatives, kind of token youth representatives, but as full members of the board elected from their communities. We also have massive programs around education for children. So I was just in the south of India where we have over 100 schools who are members of URI, who are cooperation circles, whose curriculum is based on intercultural and interreligious dialogue as a component of their curriculum. That's true in New Zealand and in Australia. That's true in a number of parts of the world where URI uh, children's education is very important. Bill? Yeah, I was just going to build on the last point you made. One time I was in New Delhi and the Salwan school system invited me to come by, mm-hmm. and they had become a cooperation circle. Well, there are 7,000 students and faculty. I was thinking a little cooperation circle. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here were 7,000 people, and they had an entire evening program devoted to URI with music and dance and et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was mind-boggling. But they want to make sure that... Um, when they, their children grow up, uh, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, others, they want them to have a peaceful understanding of other, other religions. Because if they don't get it, we're back into the fight. The other thing I wanted to say is we were in Sarajevo mm-hmm. a couple of years ago 
And in Sarajevo during the war, the Christians and the Muslim were down here and um, the Orthodox were up there on the top of the hill uh, shooting them every day. Bam, 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 bam. And um, after the war, there was a, a Serbian Orthodox young lady up there in the hills and they didn't want to come down into the city, but she wanted to, she wanted to be part of the peace movement. So uh, she wasn't sure how they were going to handle her because we have a cooperation circle that is really outstanding, made up of um, Muslim and Christians. Uh, and she came down into the city and offered herself to be part of the reconciliation of those three religions. And she was embraced and... Uh, uh, she became. She has become a great leader uh, in URI. Mm-hmm. If you're in, if you're in Sarajevo, you really get it. I mean, you might be in San Francisco or someplace, and there's a lot of religious freedom, and everybody kind of gets mm-hmm. along. Ha ha. Maybe, maybe. But boy, if you're mm-hmm. in a place like that, uh, you really understand the importance of what we're about. Mm-hmm. I want to thank the person who asked this question. And with the indulgence of the panel and being very brief, may I answer it? Yes. (laughs) Why don't more interfaith councils, religious colleges, and or others, other religious groups uh, or institutions work together more often? And uh, this is really a URI success story. Um, And I will be the first to confess, and Will knows this story, that um, when I first uh, assumed this position 12 years ago as director... Uh, I thought you needed a passport to cross a bridge uh, to go to another county. And I was very myopic in terms of my my devotion to San Francisco until the North Bay fires and received a call from the director of the Department of Emergency Management who said, who is your counterpart in Sonoma County? And who is your counterpart in Marin? Because that's where the evacuees were presenting themselves. And I got the same calls from uh, the Salvation Army as well as um, uh, uh, the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. And so we found ourselves in this really unique position because all of these, co- all of these interfaith councils are cooperation circles. And thank God those relationships were there. We know each other. But we were starting to make referrals to one another, do, do relationship building. And then we were asked to start deploying chaplains up into Sonoma County, and especially Santa Rosa, when people were repopulating their homes after the evacuation. And after it was all over, because we had heard some different stories, and it was very hectic, it was very messy, um, but we all came together at the Department of Emergency Management, Salvation Army, Red Cross, all our counterparts, to do a debrief on how each of us saw what was happening up there, and how we could do better, mm-hmm. especially in vetting chaplains going up to these areas, uh, especially ministering to people who had religious dietary restrictions or just sensitivity in how to talk to people. And now, working together, we're creating a curriculum for those uh, chaplains that we're vetting that are going up there. So, at least in the Bay Area, I can say that I have a greater appreciation, uh, and these are cooperation circles working together because the relationships are there. Then eloquently said, um, also, 
I think the world is becoming more interfaith, whether you like it or not. Uh, sports teams are interfaith. Mm-hmm. Schools are interfaith. Marriages are interfaith. Neighborhoods are interfaith. That's right. Cities are... You cannot stop it. Uh, there's a, um, there are lots of religions in silos and circle the wagons, but the people get out of their religions and have to live in a civil society. And then they find out that the other people are really human and I like them and maybe we ought to get together. Uh, you will hear more and more and more interfaith. You won't hear less and less. You'll hear more and more. And we're not, we haven't cornered the market. Uh, we're, we're just a little po- small part of the market. Uh, the real market of interfaith is, is out in the real world where people make it up as they go along. And just to Bill's point earlier, you know, the word interfaith is really a too small container because too often we assume that it means just people who are affiliated with organized religion. But as, as Bill said earlier and what Bill and Rita established at the beginning is this is about all humanity. We all have beliefs, and our beliefs are shaped and formed by a number of things, one of which is religion for some. Um, many other things shape our beliefs. But to be people of all beliefs who are welcoming the wisdom of traditions as well as the wisdom of people who live outside of those traditions is what URI has been always about. And I think you find more and more families are facing it as children grow up and meet people mm-hmm. from other faiths. Yeah. And I would venture to say that half the people in this room have people in their family who are into faith. Mm-hmm. I know I do. <laughs> I have a wonderful Chinese grandnephew who's married to my grandniece, and they're just fabulous. The kids are great. <laughs> I, since you have the floor... Um, this person asks an interesting question. She goes, if Rita doesn't mind, would you talk about your remarkable career? I would like to, I would like to take that back for a second and say, you've been alive for almost 10 decades. Um, you've seen changes in the world. What has inspired your interfaith work? I guess I got it from my parents. I grew up in New York during the Great Depression, And um, I had parents who were first-generation children of immigrants, and they were struggling like everybody in New York was during that time. But no matter how little we had, my parents always managed to find more to do for other people and to share what we had. And I just grew up with that. Okay. Wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> her, her father was in vaudeville. You promised you weren't. It's a little known fact. You promised you weren't going to say yeah, that. No. You relieved me of my. No. I, think, I think his famous line was "Always keep them asking for more." There we go. Always keep us asking for more. So I'll say one thing too, which is that of all the people in the world, and there are many who care deeply about your eye and deeply about the peace movement and deeply about the faith movement and who are fierce in that no one holds my feet to the fire with compassion and love and courage and challenge like Rita Semmel this person asked the question does your eye have ideas on how 
to find peace between the Abrahamic faiths, or even tolerance, respect in other countries especially. There's a wonderful group that um, is based in Israel and Palestine called the Abrahamic Reunion. And this is a, a cooperation circle that has been operating for quite some time. And they have for many years built quietly relationships among Christians, Muslims, Jews, and the Druze community, and Arabs and Israelis and Palestinians and everyone. And their, their anchor is their relationships. And you know, one of the things we know about that region is that generationally, young people growing up in that region today have far less interaction with people from other communities than they did 30 years ago. And that's a huge issue. Abrahamic Reunion creates those places of encounter in schools, in communities, and they make public vigils. They go out when there is great tension in the communities, and they stand together, and they sing together, and they pray together, and they witness together. And so those kinds of um, action-oriented, relationship-building communities are at the heart of it. And I think that, you know, that one group has such wisdom for the rest of the world where there are these issues as well that to find um, a deep respect for difference, it's not about homogenizing everything and making everything the same. It's about the great beauty of diversity. It's about living as one among many when the many is a beautiful reflection of, in some of our beliefs, the kind of creation of the divine. Yeah, we also, we have other kind of cooperation circles having to do with women, uh, having to do with uh, the Jordan River, Mm -hmm. having to do with uh, music, uh, et cetera, et cetera. People will say, do you ever believe, do you believe there'll ever be peace in the Middle East? And I said, there is peace in the Middle East. I've seen it with my own eyes. Yeah, thank you. Is it, Bill, there's the Echo Peace Jordan group, the Cooperation yep. Circle in Jordan. I went into their offices in Amman, and they work on the Jordan River issues, so issues that relate to the Jordan River. And I was just recently at URI, and I went in, we we're having a conversation, and I was trying to be smart and show how much I knew. And I said, you know, water is the source of such conflict. And the director of Echo Peace looked at me, shaking his head, and I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> and he said, water is the possibility for peace. And I was like, well said. (laughs) You were put in your place. (laughs) Unfortunately, we have time for only one more question. Um, And this is it. There's a lot of people in this room. What does the average person, how does the average person get involved in URI? Because you've been talking about cooperation circles, you've been talking about the great things that are going on, but how does the average person help to bring peace in our world? I'll say one thing, and I want to pass it to Bill, because he's working on a really exciting initiative right now. URI is about average people. (laughs) That's the first thing. So it's about people coming together. And and there are, we can help people connect to existing resources in all communities where there are already either existing groups of people who are just average folks who've come together and are doing good things or who aspire to that. And so we can help connect people and work with people in forming, in 
initially maybe just connection, not even formally a cooperation circle, but eventually come together. But we've also been thinking a lot about how individuals can feel connected. I'm going to pass that to Bill. <laughs> yes. Um, we, um, when we got started, we said, okay, you could be a member either as an individual or a cooperation circle member. And after 20 years, we have about a million members of cooperation circles, and we have about 40 (laughs) individual members. (laughs) So we haven't really paid a lot of attention to this side of the street. So Barbara and some of us around here are working hard on figuring out if you're a member of URI, and uh, that means um, how you want to be part of the value system. Uh, we have 21 principles. If those are principles that appeal to your heart, um, let us know. If you want to be part of the work, we'll figure out ways to for you to get involved. If you want to give money, uh, that's that's perfectly okay. You're not going to pass a train. We're not going to pass okay. it. Okay. But <laughs> if you're sitting in the audience and wonder what you could do, send me an email. And say I'd like to be. I'd like to look into being an individual member, uh, and I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you quickly uh, to say later on, and then I'll get back to you with a with a whole program. It's going to take a couple months. We're working hard on it, but when we get it, we will really get it. So my uh, email is very simple: bswing at uri dot org. Bswing s w i n g dot org. Um, at, UR, at URI, yep. upper respiratory infection. <laughs> Be swing at URI.org. Yep. And, and we're not going to lose you. If you, if you want to be with us, we'll figure it out. And you can be, go on our website uh, and learn more and receive newsletters and become part of this remarkable global community. Before we close, I'm going to ask each of you, what's your dream for URI mm. moving forward? I dream that URI will continue the to be that organism, to be that place where people can find one another, connect to one another, and 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 resist the world's temptations to become some structured, reified, hardened sort of organization like other organizations, but be, but stay the movement, stay the initiative that grows and grows organically uh, throughout the world. Rita? I think URI can be an example. I hope it, it is an example now. I hope it will continue to be an example of what can be done when people are willing to sit down and talk to each other and listen, more importantly than talk, listen to each other. Because just as I suggest that all religions at base want to repair the world, most people are good people. I have to believe that, even at my advanced age. But you or I can be that agent. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, religiously motivated violence, it would be like polio. Uh, it could be eradicated. Mm. I look forward to the time where uh, there's no need for URI. Mm. That uh, 
the religiously motivated violence would be eradicated and everybody would cut it and we wouldn't be needed. I was just going to ask you to join me in thanking our (laughs) distinguished panel. You beat me to the punch. The Right Reverend William Swing, founder and president of the United Religions Initiative, Rita Semmel, the first global chair of URI, and the the Reverend Victor Kazanjan, Jr., executive director of URI. We also thank our audiences here and those listening to the recording on the Internet. I'm Michael Pappas, Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council, a cooperation circle of United Religions Initiative, and your moderator for today's program, Envisioning Peace, the United Religions Initiative. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Well done. You're the man. That was good.